0: good hymns. Those marked by sound theology and a fitting match of text and music have en- endured because they are timeless and because they are based on scriptural truth. Now a little town of Bethlehem in the form that we have before us fits the description of a good hymn. For that reason it will be our guide in considering yet another angle on this important season of reflection we call Advent. We will begin our study of O little town of Bethlehem, by reading the verse Philip Brooks alludes to in this hymn, Micah 5, 2, hear now God's word. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us your word. We are thankful that people have taken it upon themselves to sing of the truths revealed by by your word. I pray, Lord, as we consider this uh, topical study of this hymn, that we would be refreshed and renewed again by the truths of your word as sung here. Lord, I pray more specifically that each of us might see how you have not stopped taking the ordinary, the normal, the seemingly insignificant, in bringing about your magnificent, glorious plan. Lord, I pray that we would bring glory to you by even the things we think today. In Jesus' name, amen. God uh, seems to favor using the most unlikely means to accomplish his glorious plans. Just think about it for a moment. Noah building an ark before any rain had fallen upon the earth. How about picking Abram to be the father of us all, then using his elderly barren wife to have the promised son. Skip ahead to stuttering, stammering, hot-headed Moses, and he would use him to lead the entire nation of Israel, two million people, out of slavery. Think of the story of Ruth, as we just studied not too long ago, taking this one woman, and the most unlikely of all women, to then be used to eventually be the mother of, In a distant way of David, the king. What about David, though? I mean, Jesse had a bunch of sons, and they were all bigger and stronger than David. Yet God, using the uh, most unlikely means, picks David, the youngest, skinniest, scrawniest of them all, and makes him the king. And with one stone falls a giant and makes his way to the kingship of Israel. On and on, over and over, God uses the most unlikely means, the most unlikely people, the most unlikely places. And he brings to them great glory and magnificence based on what he does. Phillips Brooks gives us a wonderful hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And in summary of this hymn, God's magnificent ancient promise to send the Savior is fulfilled in the most ordinary way. And I would submit to you, God still works in this way in the lives of his people. Now consider the story of the hymn itself because I think it's interesting and encouraging. Uh, Brooks was an Episcopalian minister in the late 1800s. He became eventually the Bishop of Massachusetts, a large diocese, uh, just two years before he died. Well, before that time, in about the age of 30, in 1865, he took a trip to the Holy Land. Uh, And he went there, and in those days they didn't have uh, tour guides that took you from Jerusalem out to Bethlehem. Instead, he had to take a horse, horseback, in 1865 to go to Bethlehem. And he got there in the evening as the sun was setting, and he saw Bethlehem. In all his study, all the times he had reflected upon what the Bible said about Bethlehem came to his mind in a rushing thought and way as he saw Bethlehem, how normal it was, how small it was. Why would God pick this place in the shadow of all these other big cities, these happening places? Then when he got there, there there's a church, the Church of the Nativity, and at that time uh, they would have ongoing services there every day. And for five hours he worshipped in this church. Uh, And he was so moved by this that on his way back to Jerusalem, he wrote five stanzas of a poem that have become the hymn we sing. When he got back to the United States, he gave his organist his poem. And the organist took the poem and put it to music, and they immediately started singing, singing it in the church that he was a pastor of. Now, over time we've removed one of the verses. And if you look at the verse, it's not they're not in your hymnal. We only sing four verses, and most hymnals only have four. And you know, Presbyterians are really particular about this stuff. And it's a good poem, for the most part, that one verse is a little bit strange and hard to understand. It doesn't fit with the rest as well. And not being the word of God, we go ahead and take that out, and we sing the four verses we like the most, that we think most reflect biblical truth. And that's the version that you have that we sing. And the, the, the music, and... In our hymnal, and there's two different versions of it. The first one, the one we'll sing today, that's the original music done, set for this poem that became a hymn that we call, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Now, to most, Bethlehem was totally anonymous. To the average person in the world in that day, they'd never heard of it. Now, last week in the first service, I said it would be like God uh, sending Messiah to Nob Noster, Missouri. I said that in the first service. Well, I got several complaints. In fact, I got a whole sheet from someone about Nobnoster, Noster, Nab Noster history, and it's a significant place it was argued. So by the second service, I had made the adjustment, and now some of you were in the early service last week, you remember this. Well, by the second service, I had done some research, and then further research since then, to give you a good feel of what it would be like to send Messiah to Bethlehem to us. It would be like this, like choosing Beer Bottle Crossing, Idaho, that's what it would be like, or Dead Horse, Alaska, actual place. Or monkey's eyebrow, Arizona, or tightwad Missouri. How's that for a great place, gentlemen? Skullbone, Tennessee. That's what it'd be like. Or cut and shoot, Texas, or wolf lick, deer lick, or mud lick, Kentucky. I said, and the best, of course, it would be like picking toad suck, Arkansas, to come. For most, Bethlehem was totally anonymous. But subtly, for others, there was a deep meaning behind Bethlehem, as small and insignificant as it was. You see, the Old Testament throughout, you'll see little focuses, little times where something happens in Bethlehem that's significant. It kind of gets passed over quickly, but if you look at it, much more happened in this little place. Maybe only a few understood it, but Bethlehem takes on new significance when we consider how the Bible reveals the place to us. First, in Genesis 35, we are introduced in a, an explicit way anyways, there are other references. But in Genesis 35, the first real reference to Bethlehem. Listen to this account. It's about the time Rachel died, the favored wife of Jacob. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Epratah, Rachel went into labor. And that's just another name for Bethlehem, which I'll refer to in a moment. She had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, which, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to ephrathah that is, Bethlehem. And interestingly, I am told, I have not been there, but I am told and I have seen pictures of it. There is a fortified building that is said to house the remains of Rachel to this day in Bethlehem. That's where Rachel died. But also later in the scripture, if you remember our study of the book of Ruth, Ruth, or more particularly, Naomi and Boaz, were from that place. And that's where Ruth ended up residing. Here, Ruth 4, 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, "'We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman,' referring to Ruth, "'who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, "'who together built up the house of Israel. "'May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. "'And may your house be like the house of Perez,' Whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So we have a very significant couple, Ruth and Boaz, now residing in Bethlehem. In fact, you'll hear Ephrata and Bethlehem used interchangeably, they mean the same thing. It would be like this it would be uh, the region and the particular city. Bethlehem, the particular city, the region, Ephrata. Not so much a state, it would be a region. It would be like us saying, uh, We live in Overland Park, Kansas City. We live in Kansas City, in particular, Overland Park. That's how it would be referred to. That's why you see him use both. David also comes from there. See how significant this little place is. Saul was, or, uh, Samuel was sent to choose a new king. Listen to what it says in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And that's where David comes from. So the place is taking on new significance for sure. Literally meaning the house of bread. Beth, the house, Lahem, bread. That's when, or that's the backdrop for Micah's prophecy, just over 600 years before the time of Jesus. While the time of the southern kingdom was waning and their righteousness was falling off and repentance was called for by Micah. And everyone thought that military might is what would save them. In Jerusalem is the place, the fortified place, the place of war, the place of the troops, the place of the great wall. That's what will save us. And Micah says in that context, but to you, O Bethel- Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. They don't even recognize you. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel whose origins is from old, from ancient of days. So Micah reveals what God likes to do, use the most insignificant, seemingly anonymous thing to bring forth his great deliverance. And he forecasts a day when from Bethlehem would come Messiah. He looks to a brighter day, the day of Messiah. With this in mind, with this significance of Bethlehem, now let's consider the words penned by Philip Brooks to remind us of its significance in its deep profundity, as we understand these verses to be written. Look at the first verse. A little town of Bethlehem, exact a reference and use of the word little, like Micah has. How still we see thee, lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by, yet in thy dark streets shine at the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Notice how it's described, Bethlehem is described. Literally, it's little, it's still, sleepy, It's dark. Now, this is contrasted with what happens there. It's a place of fulfillment. In this little, still, sleepy, dark place comes a shining. Shining of what? The everlasting light. And a fulfillment of the generations of hopes and fears that exist. And I think the best line in the whole hymn is the last two lines of this stanza The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. What are your particular hopes, and what are your particular fears? I can tell you what my hopes are. My hopes are, I hope that I can have a fruitful, God-honoring marriage with my wife. That's my my hope. It's probably the first and foremost hope I have, earthly speak. I hope that I can maintain God-honoring relationships with other people. I hope that my kids grow up persevering in their love for Christ. I hope that my boys find godly spouses and if God blesses them in such a way that they would have godly children. And I hope they have three boys. Five would even be better just to see them running and ripping all over them. I hope that our church grows in its effectiveness for Christ's glory in Kansas City and the world. And trust me, I'd never ever pray that the church gets bigger. I pray that the church would be more effective. If the church wants to make us bigger to be more effective, that's his will. Maybe he wants to make us smaller to be more effective. But that we would be more effective. That's what I pray for. That's my hope. I hope the church at a wider level, beyond us, other brothers and sisters in Christ, across denominational lines, I hope that the church at a wider level would undergo reformation and revival. That's a hope I have. What are your hopes? What are your fears? Tell you what my fears are. A lot of them are the flip side of my hopes. I fear these things might not come to pass, if I'm honest. I fear that I would do something to mess it all up. I fear broken relationships. I fear for my children, their future. And all the things I mention is my hope for them. Isn't it true that hopes and fears are simultaneously experienced by human beings, if we're honest? You see, though, the the profoundness of these verses that capture what the Bible teaches about Christ should not be missed and truly helps me. The hopes and fears, all those things I just mentioned, of all the years, not just mine, but every human being who has had somewhat, uh, have had common experiences. You know, you are not tempted in a way that no one else has ever been. And all those things, those hopes and those fears, are met in this one place, Bethlehem, that night. Very simply, Jesus Christ answers my hopes and my fears. He basically puts the spotlights on my hope. He defines my hopes. And what I mean by this is sometimes we hope for the wrong things. See, our hopes have to be defined by Christ. So analyze, what do you hope for? Is it it Christ's priority? Because that's what we ought to be hoping for. Oftentimes we live disappointed and disgruntled lives because we're hoping for things that are not God's will. They're not what Christ reveals as priority. So our hopes and our fears are defined by Christ. They're met by Christ. So my fears take on new meaning. It's not that we don't struggle with fear. It's that we have our fears answered in Christ. And maybe sometimes, in the most general way, it's just simply that nothing happens to us that is not ordained by God. To the very point that Mike brought up and others have said in their testimonies. We don't get all the details, but we understand how it is that God superintends over all of them lovingly and supernaturally and sovereignly. It's not a mistake what happens. And that helps me on the fear side of things. Hopes and our fears are met in Bethlehem that night. It means Christ has come. So all of our hopes are realized in Christ, and our fears are answered by Christ. Look at the second uh, stanza of this great hymn. For Christ is born of Mary, and gathered all above while mortals sleep and angels keep their watch of wondering love. Now he basically implies or takes from Scripture the, the sense in which there was the heavenly host observing and watching. And he actually implies here a certain overseeing of the earthly common events. And you can, extre- you can definitely get this from the fact that Gabriel is announcing something, at the si- same time watching over it. Fear not, he says. And he talks about uh, what will happen when he's talking to Mary. And he, uh, in a sense, represents how it is that God superintends over what he decides to do or what he has decided to do. And so Brooks just captures this idea that that there's a supernatural overseeing of God's will being done even when seemingly common events like the birth of a baby occur. The angels of God overseeing and guarding if you will, the birth of baby Jesus. God will execute his plan. He will see it through. Herod won't stop it. Some other Some other roadblock to his plan happening will not get in the way. He will oversee it happening. Look at the second part of the second stanza. Oh, morning stars together proclaim the holy birth. Literally in the sense that this one star shone brightly over where it was that Christ was born. The morning stars together proclaim the holy birth and praise sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. There is an allusion here to uh, the praise that creation gives for Christ's incarnation. And as important as it is that we answer the call to worship as worshipers, brothers and sisters, that's important. It's commanded. Uh, But if we don't, we read in Scripture that the rocks will cry out. In other words, the very things that God has created stand always and everywhere proclaiming their creator. Uh, Creation doesn't, in this sense, struggle with who created it. We're the ones who get that mixed up. Creation knows, if you will, Who's created, it, and in it constantly and consistently proclaims the glory and worth and magnificence of God. He captures this as he says, The morning stars together proclaim the holy birth, and praises and sing to God the King, and peace to men and earth. But notice also the description of the action uh, taken here wondering love, a holy birth, God the King, the peace bringer. You see the concepts? Love. The love of God. Holiness is otherness. His kingship is rule. And peace, that which he can bring, only he can bring, by taking down the dividing wall of separation that separates us between God, which is made up and stacked up of our sin. And he takes it away and gives peace. Who else can possibly embody love, holiness, kingship, and peace? Only Christ. Only Christ. Look at the third stanza. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. I want you to think about something. Be honest. I'll, I'll confess for you through me. I don't give gifts silently. Now, I've learned through etiquette not to make a big deal out of what I give someone, but I don't give them silently. In fact, my wife and I have like a dollar limit we're allowed to give. I like to always cheat a little on it and kind of, you know, let her kind of beat her with that. I give her something a little bit more, cost a little. We just don't, there's an admixture of weird selfishness and genuine love for the person we're giving something to, but we just don't give things silently. We present things in front of everybody. We make a big deal out of it. We stop and watch as everyone opens their present. And yes, I think there's some selflessness in giving it, but some of it still is wrapped up in just wanting everyone to see what I got them. But here, the greatest gift ever given, ever given, silently it's given. It is is profound, it's even staggering when you consider how profound it is that God would give his son and do so in relative anonymity. Quietly, silently even, this wondrous gift is given. I mean, think of all the things that happened on the globe that particular moment, that time, and how much of it had any clue what was going on. The wondrous gift given. So God imparts... To human hearts, the blessings of his heaven. So the gift is not just something that is uh, perishable or something that will be obsolete within weeks or days. It is something that bears heaven's eternality. The gift would last on for generations and into eternity. The best gift ever given by far. It never wears out, it never gets old, it never becomes obsolete. It's always effective. And he gives it in that silence, that relative silence. And just as Ephesians says, we are given every spiritual blessing in Christ, that's eternal blessing. God imparts to human beings an eternal gift, his son. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. This reference to the humility that is required for one to acknowledge their sins and trust Christ. It's a depiction of the free offer of the gospel that stands. Yes, it's God who gives us hearts bent towards him. But how do you know you're saved? How do you know you're in Christ Do you rest completely in Christ or do you hang on to something else, something of your own? Where meek souls, humble souls, those who acknowledge their inability to meet with God on their own merit, where meek souls will receive Him still, where they trust in Him, where they rest upon Him and His work, Christ personally enters in. This is a personal nature of our walk with Christ, and this hymn does a great job of walking through this very reality. Look at the last verse of the hymn. Really, it turns from general statements of praise and truth about God to a particular prayer, really, to Christ. O holy child of Bethlehem, notice very distinctly what it said, descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin, and enter in. Be born in us today. In a nutshell, of the christian life recognize god that we need you to show yourself to us descend to us in a way we can understand which is the incarnation emmanuel god with us we can understand god because of christ descend to us christ i, I, I recognize jesus i know it's descend to us cast out our sin i recognize that now that i see him that he is descended that i can't meet with him in my sin cast out my sin Come to me in a way I can understand and get rid of my sin, please God. And then enter in. With my sin removed, enter in. Take over, hold my life. And be born in us today. Do you see what it says? Descend to us, cast out our sin, come to us, come into us, abide with us. Herein is a Christian life in a nutshell. Have you come to understand who Christ is? Have you cast your sin upon him? Have you embraced Christ? Are you walking with Christ? We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel, Lord with us, God with us. God's magnificent ancient promises to send the Savior is fulfilled in the most ordinary way. And I would submit to you that God still works in this way. And what I mean by by that is this. If he used little old Bethlehem, he can use any one of us. He can use you no matter what your gifts are, your talents, or your abilities are, or what deficits you have in all those areas. In fact, I would submit to you that the very things that we think are so influential, even for the kingdom, <clears throat> are not needed at all by God. Have you ever fallen into the trap of thinking that that ministry or that person or that institution, if, if the church didn't have those things, what would happen to God's testimony? If that guy died, what would happen? Or if that church failed? We, fall into the, we fail in many ways by thinking such things. When the reality is God usually doesn't use the big man to accomplish things. In fact, think of the big men of the Bible that God used. What did he have to do to them for them to be usable? Nebuchadnezzar, what happened to him? Most powerful man in the world at that time. He was only usable to God when he was broken down. Same thing with Pharaoh. Or go down the list of individuals who we would consider, by the world's definition, big men. God had to humble them to the point where they could be used, and it wasn't always for their betterment, was it? On the other hand, look at who he usually uses, the smallest guy, the little one, the one who recognizes they don't have any abilities. I think that message is profound for us today. I hope you never get hung up with how big we are or what your family is particularly like or what your personal abilities are. Do you limit yourself, or are you limited by the idea that you have too many deficits to be used of God? Oh, the family I come from. Well, here's the, the, the news flash of the morning. Every one of you comes from a hideously dysfunctional family. Right? I mean, anyone that can look very long and see that there's not just a total lack of, uh, of function. Whatever function is. What is a functional family? I don't know. But amazingly, God is in the, the habit of or the practice of using even that brokenness to bring magnificent things to pass. Simplicity of Bethlehem the simplicity of us broken people. And yet he does just amazing things. That, that My great confidence comes from the fact that he takes that which is broken and he continually shows his glory through it. I think we're in a great place then if that's the case. Brokenness, deficit, lack of talent, lack of gifts, lack of ability. He can use your family, he can use our church, and size and earthly significance are no impediment for God. In fact, he almost takes delight in taking the thing no one thinks will succeed in making it do great things for his glory. Remember Bethlehem. God's magnificent ancient promise to send the Savior was just part of his overall plan of salvation and glory. There is much still left. Much more will occur. And guess what? Little old us are part of his ordained means to accomplish his will. I think that's the ultimate significance of a song that highlights the very simplicity of a city and a town so long ago. It contrasts that with the magnificence of what God places in it. And I hope we go forth thinking in a new way about the fact that our deficits actually, actually could be the very thing God uses to bring glory to himself. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for choosing Bethlehem. I thank you for your work and your ministry Uh, through the lives of regular broken people. Lord, I think of uh, individuals like Abraham who could not wait, but rather had to try to fulfill the plan in his own way, yet you still used him in a major way. Lord, the way that you took Moses with all his personal problems, his anger issues. He killed a guy. Lord, you still used him in a magnificent way. And David, who is a man after your own heart, yet uh, not only does he go as far as to commit adultery in the way that he does, but he actually has... Uh, the woman's husband killed, Lord. But yet, your magnificence is what is left on the pages of Scripture as you even use him. And Lord, you use Bethlehem, a place that now is uh, more or less uh, fortified and bordered up and only a place that Christians go to see for a brief moment. But what it resemble, or what it reminds us of, Lord, is that you take the ordinary, the simple, the plain, and you bring glory to yourself as a result. And I pray that we would uh, grasp that reality and see it realized in our own lives right down to the very individual families and church that we have here i pray that it would be for your glory we pray this in jesus name amen now let us sing 201 stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 as the elders come to prepare the table of oh little town of bethlehem 201 we'll stand as we sing